Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, starting May 8th, wherever you get your podcasts. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hola y bienvenidos to The Rest is History, or should I say, Tom Holland, Merhaba, Salam Aleikum. Now, we are in the middle of our Great World Cup odyssey, and we have reached the Kingdom of Spain. But Tom, you have chosen a topic from Spanish history before the Kingdom of Spain existed, haven't you? And one of the most colourful and dramatic topics in all European history. I have. It is, uh, as your exemplary mastery of languages um, introduced at the beginning of this, uh, suggested it is the Caliphate of Cordova, which is the golden age of Muslim Spain, Cordova, the greatest city in Western Europe, its peak. So I want to look at how a caliphate came to be established in Spain, its golden age and its decline. So that's the plan, Dominic. So this is the world of, if anybody's been there, so I've been there, I guess you've probably been there, Tom, to Cordova, to the the wondrous edifice that is the Mezquita. So basically this extraordinary building that is the most magnificent mosque with a massive great cathedral well, it's not. Yeah, yeah. So it got reconquered by the Christians in the long run and got converted into a cathedral. <laughs> they just. I mean, it's the most. Yes, it's the most appalling. And do you, and Dominic, do you know my solution to the the whole Hagia Sophia, Cordova Mosque solution? It's yeah. Basically, they swap. Oh yes, that is a good idea. So the Mosque of Cordova becomes a mosque. Yeah. And Hagia Sophia becomes a cathedral. That's an excellent idea. And everyone's happy. So that's my. But this is not about um, bringing solutions to contemporary geopolitical no. problems. This is about history, Dominic. So in the public mind, Tom, this caliphate is this sort of lost golden age, this paradise of babbling fountains, people in hospitals, kindly philosophers, multiculturalism, munching on oranges, listening to the tinkling of fountains. Exactly. People drinking sherbet, all this sort (laughs) of stuff. Am I I on the right track? Well, kind of on the right track. I mean, it is a a great, great centre of urban imperial civilization of a kind that would have been familiar to the Romans and indeed to people in Constantinople and Baghdad at the time. And it's of a different order of sophistication to anything that you would have got, say, in France or Germany or England at the time. Does that mean it was a multicultural paradise? Well, we will explore and find out. But I think that to to, to put it in its context, we should go back to the beginning of how it is that uh, large chunks of Spain comes under Muslim rule, under Arab rule. Um, And in a way, this is a sequel to an episode that we've already done on the one episode we did on Saudi Arabia, on the Kaaba, where there was a dynasty called the Umayyads played quite a key role. Uh, yes. And the greatest of these figures was Abdul Malik, the guy who builds the Dome of the Rock and who just conceivably perhaps plays the key role in fixing the sacrality of Mecca for future generations. Um, so the Umayyads are the first great imperial dynasty of the caliphate. Yeah. And... They preside over this age of astonishing imperial expansion on a kind of, you know, unprecedented speed and scale. Uh, and they spread eastwards as far as the, the frontiers of China, but they also spread westwards and they go along the um, southern shoreline of the Mediterranean and they right, come all the way to the Atlantic. And there, of course, the pillars of Hercules, these straits separating Africa from Europe. And in 711, an Arab leader called Tariq bin Ziyad mm-hmm. crosses over the straits of what will come to be called Gibraltar. And Gibraltar derives from the Arabic Jabal Tariq, the mountain of Tariq. 
Okay. So that's yeah, what that's nice. what Gibraltar is. Um, and he brings with him 10,000 men who are mostly Berbers, so from Morocco. And we talk about them, don't we, in our, our episode on, on Morocco. Don't know whether that's gone out yet or, or not, because we're not sure what the order, what the running order is. But uh, ahead of them lies the land of Spain. Mm-hmm. To the Romans, Hispania. Yeah. You know, a Roman province for centuries and centuries deeply, deeply Romanized. This is the the homeland of Trajan and of Hadrian, two of Rome's greatest emperors. With the fall, the the collapse of Roman power in the West, it gets taken over by a barbarian people called the Visigoths. And the Visigoths, as the Romans had been, are Christian. They've become Christian. In fact, they've become militantly Christian. And they are very, very into the idea of themselves as a kind of chosen people. So their capital in Toledo, in the center of Spain, a new Jerusalem. And they are the first Catholic people, Dominic, to practice anointing, the anointing of their kings. The anointing of kings. So when they have coronations, the Visigothic king is anointed. And this is a practice that we will witness in due course ourselves when the king gets anointed. Do you think the king in uh, 2023, do you think he'll pay homage to um, his uh, his Visigoth forebears? I think it's unlikely, but in a way, the process, you know, standing there and being anointed, you're paying tribute to it, I guess, yeah, so, I mean, in a manner of speaking. Um, I mean, it's a practice that derives from Israelite practice. And so, again, it's this idea that the Visigoths are a kind of, you know, a reborn chosen people. Yeah. However... The idea that God is showing them special favor receives a massive knock right. <laughs> when, when he Tariq bin Ziyad yeah. and his 10,000 men turn up and annihilate the Visigothic king who immediately is called Roderick. Right. Oh, no. Poor Roderick. So the defeat of King Roderick, he, he and his army get wiped out. And this is very bad news for the Visigoths because their entire regime promptly collapsed like a kind of stack of cards. And the expanse of, it's difficult to know what to call them, the Moors, the Arabs, the Muslims. I mean, they're none of these things, really. They're a, they're a kind of, they're, they're a consortium of pillagers with kind of faint Muslim overlay at this point. They're not massively motivated by the teachings of Muhammad. They're basically okay. motivated by a desire for loot at this point. And ethnically, most of them you said were Berbers. Most of them are Berbers, yeah. So it's a huge kind of raiding party that just gets this, you know, just strikes massively, massively lucky because yeah. the Visigothic regime is very, very rackety. It collapses. And these newcomers, these invaders are able to conquer pretty much the whole of what will become Spain and Portugal. And Christian powers are kind of left in the mountainous reaches of the north. So yeah. they, they maintain their independence, but they are impoverished, backward, cooped up in, in rugged terrain. Right. So that's kind of, I'm just looking at the map, Galicia, Asturias, yeah. Navarre. Yeah. But the rest of Spain and what we call Spain and Portugal has now fallen beneath the... the Comes under, yeah, yeah, exactly. So how... How are people to interpret this? Because dramatic events in this period are are understood in supernatural terms. So the Visigoths, you know, they're saying, what's happened? We're meant to be the chosen people. And so they blame it on the the penchant of too many Visigoths, as they see it, for illicit sexual activities. Oh, no. What have they been up to? Same-sex activities, uh, basically. Um, What have they been doing? uh, Men have been sleeping with men, and women have been sleeping with women, and this is... God is cross about this, and so he's punished them. So they take the view of sort of American televangelists from the 1970s. Yes, that's very much their take. For the Muslims, of course, this is brilliant. This is God's will. Um, And the proof of this is that he's he's given them this great land, and he's made them spectacularly wealthy because, you know, this is absolutely a classic imperial adventure, and the conquerors set out to exploit the lands that they have conquered with great gusto. So uh, they take lots of slaves. So a great yeah. chain of 30,000 slaves are sent off to Syria as a, a token of the conquest to the Umayyad court in Damascus. They plunder enormous amounts of loot. So they're not content with Spain. They start raiding deep into um, into what will become France, into the, the kingdom of the Franks. Yeah. Um, and they impose a tax system on the conquered Christians and Jews. And this is prescribed in the Quran. It's a tax called the jizya, which uh, Christians and Jews are allowed to practice their faith. But in return, they have to acknowledge their uh, inferiority in various ways, and they have to pay a tax. So they don't force people to convert. They don't really want people to convert because this is the um, this is the source of their income. And and can I just ask a quick question about this uh, initial raid? Has it been ordered? Has it been done on a local basis, or has it been ordered from Damascus by the Umayyad? ruler 
it's not entirely clear. I think that the Yamads probably don't really have a sense of what you know of what's going on because it's a very very long way. Yeah. They just have a kind of vague sense that you know it's the will of God that their their rule of the world expand the limits of the world, and yeah. so they're all in favour of that. But basically, it's up to the locals to take such advantage of this as they want. It's a kind of franchise, basically. Right. I was just looking at the map. I mean, the Umayyad Caliphate, it's so interesting, isn't it, that it's so less well-known than the Roman Empire or the Empire of Alexander the Great or any of these things. When you look at the map, it is unbelievably big. I mean, the Spanish conquest is right on the Western periphery. Yeah. And as you said, it goes all the way, basically, to the borders of China and India. And it's so quick. It's such a vast process of conquest. And I think that... In a way, it's 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 the kind of the last of the great ancient imperial projects. Right. You know, it it emerges in the old imperial heartlands of the Near East, and it conquers both Persian empires and huge numbers of provinces of the Roman Empire, and it absorbs them in. And these are lands that are used to being subject to, you know, distant emperors, distant rulers, and so. I think that's in it, that that facilitates it enormously, and Spain comes to be known as Al Andalus. It's unclear where this name comes from. So some say that it, it echoes the Vandals who would pass through and who um, who passed through Spain and come to, to settle North Africa. Yeah. Others say that maybe it's an allusion to Atlantis. Oh, I like that. I've never heard that before. I like that. Yeah. So we're not sure. But anyway, it comes to be called Al-Andalus. And Spain is very rich land, very rich in all kinds of, uh, you know, its fields are rich. It's a uh, very golden province. And so this is all hurrah. Yeah. Splendid news. Uh, everyone in Damascus is very pleased about it. However... The Umayyads do not stay in power. 750, they get toppled by uh, a new dynasty, the Abbasids. And the tongue of the ruling caliph in Damascus is fed to a cat. So that's the end of him. All the other Umayyads are gathered together and uh, crushed by by their conquerors having a huge banquet on top of them. So that's bad. (laughs) Well, (laughs) and basically very, very few Umayyads survive this, but one guy does. And so in a way, he's the kind of the Aeneas. Aeneas escapes Troy and goes off to found um, yeah. Rome. The Muslim equivalent of this, the Umayyad equivalent of, of, of Aeneas, is a guy called Abd al-Rahman bin Muawiyah. And he is the grandson of an Umayyad caliph. So he's quite distinguished. And he's hunted across North Africa. And he spends five years on the run going ever further westwards, trying to escape Abbasid agents um, who are out to get him. And in 755, he arrives in Al-Andalus. And... Within a year, he has entered the capital of Al-Andalus, which is the great and ancient city of Cordova. So a a Roman foundation. It's where Seneca, the tutor of Nero, had come from. Mm -hmm. And by the time that Abdurrahman arrives, it's been capital of Al-Andalus for about 40 years. It's replaced Seville. So he arrives and has the word not gone out, detain this man, hand him over, you know. Al-Andalus is a long way from the Middle East. I mean, it's it's a long way. And so... You know, I guess it's it's kind of a bit like the you know the the American colonies relative to to say Britain during the period of the Civil War or something like that. Yeah, people who wouldn't survive, say in Britain, can survive in the colonies, and yeah. so likewise, Abdul Rahman is able to take possession of Cordova, and it, he has himself proclaimed Emir, which is basically commander or prince, in the mosque of Cordova. So he's not proclaiming himself caliph, but he is calling himself Emir. Right, and. He very pointedly does not allow prayers to be offered for the Abbasid Caliph in distant Baghdad. I mean, given that, that this bloke had had a banquet on the bodies of his family, I think that's perfectly reasonable. Exactly. But obviously, he's surrounded by all kinds of people who have no particular investment in the survival of the Umayyads. But he proves himself very, very capable at uh, establishing his power. So he he rules for about, I think, for 33 years. Mm-hmm. Um, he establishes a very impressive degree of military and economic self-sufficiency. He crushes all his potential rivals within Spain. And he also suppresses every Abbasid attempt to kick him out of Al-Andalus. And he actually, he beheads the leader of one of these expeditions, pickles the head and sends it back to the Abbasids. Um, and there's quite a lot of beheading in this period going on. I actually quite <laughs> enjoy that in a podcast. Not in <laughs> real life, but in a podcast. I'll, I, I can never that. If you like beheading, you'll love this. So, Dominic, you mentioned the, the, the Great Mosque of Cordova, this beautiful, astonishing, incomparable building. Yeah. Um, Abdul Rahman is the guy who begins it. So he begins it in 785. Traditionally, it is said to have been built on the site of a Christian cathedral. 
that the cathedral in uh, sacred to uh, John the Baptist, that this cathedral, the Muslims had come and they had taken over half of it. And then with Abdul Rahman, they take over the whole lot, level it and uh, build the mosque on the site. It's not 100% certain that that happened. Okay. The debate around this is quite political, as you can imagine. There are kind of very strong feelings on Christian side, on Muslim side. It's certainly possible. And at the very least, it's built on a, on a kind of, as you know, a center of Christian power. And so therefore, building the mosque is making a statement about the, the supersession of Christianity yeah. that Islam has replaced it. And this is visible in the very fabric of the mosque, because what the architects do is they take columns from pagan temples, from Christian churches. They have a very, very distinctive style where the arches alternate brick with stone, white with red. And these arches are constructed according to Roman method. Uh, but there's a very kind of distinctive horseshoe style of, of the arches. And this is very Visigothic. Right. In due course, the Umayyad rulers will construct a private prayer room and they will employ craftsmen from Constantinople to gild it with exquisite mosaics. So essentially, the mosque bears witness to the absorption of defeated empires, defeated cultures, defeated faiths yeah. into the universal empire of, of Islam. And it is a magnificent. I mean, if anybody who hasn't you know, whether you're listening to this podcast on the tube or going for a walk or whatever, do, if you haven't been, do Google the Mesquita of Cordoba because it is a stunning building when you go and you see people often say, don't they, Tom, that the, the columns, which as you say are from Roman temples or whatever, that they look like palm trees in an oasis or yeah. something, that there is this effect of walking into this forest of columns yeah. with the beautiful arches. It really is stunning. And even um, when, uh, when, when the Christians in due course captured it and turned it into a cathedral, the complaint was, you know, you have, you've, you've ruined something that has no parallel anywhere in the world. And that was a, a criticism of contemporaries, you know, in yeah. the 16th century. It's Charles V who does it. Anyway, so this, gr this great mosque is built to serve as the center of an increasingly Muslim population. Because um, over the decades and then the centuries, Islam becomes ever more fashionable and Cordova itself becomes ever more clearly a Muslim city. So the Roman street plan starts to vanish. Muslim uh, traders, by and large, don't use carts. So there's no need for the kind of the broad streets that had existed in the Roman period. The wine market is closed. You know, Spain had been a great center for the wine trade in the yeah. Roman Empire, but no place for that in, in Islam. And by about 850, Christians in Cordova are, are feeling increasingly under siege. Um, basically, Islam is where it's at. Uh, it's fashionable. It's cool. Everyone's speaking Arabic. Muslim styles are everywhere. Christianity is coming to seem increasingly low status. Uh, you know, if you want a job in the bureaucracy, you've basically got to be a Muslim. The fewer Christians there are, the more taxes are loaded on them. So it's financially demanding as well. So more and more people start to convert to Islam. And you get this extraordinary phenomenon in Cordova where you get Christians who, who deliberately go out into the streets and attempt to court martyrdom by insulting the prophet. Oh, my God. And, you know, the Muslim authorities don't want really want to act on this. They don't want to kind of precipitate sectarian riots or anything like that. Yeah. But you get Christians in Cordova who are deliberately trying to court martyrdom. And, you know, that they, they duly do get martyred <laughs> and the whole thing gradually fizzles out because increasingly Cordova is becoming ever more Muslim. So by about, you know, by, by 8.50, it's been estimated it's about 70% is Muslim. Right. Uh, yeah. And the same is true out in, uh, in other urban settlements. And increasingly, the place where you find Christians is out in the country. So yeah. they're seen as... That makes sense. You know, they're kind of associated with peasants. But this generates a problem because, as you pointed out earlier, in a way, the Muslim authorities don't want mass conversions because it diminishes the tax base because you're dependent on Christians to pay the jizya. And so over the course of the ninth century, the, the state, the Umayyad state starts to fragment and you have a process rather similar to what is starting to happen in France at the same time, where central power is diminishing and you are starting to get people putting up what you might call castles, fortifications, you know, or in every crest of a hill. So sort of local warlords basically establishing their own bases. Yeah. And so you get kind of increasingly a state of anarchy. And by the beginning of the 10th century, the authority of the Umayyads has essentially become confined to Cordova. And the entire system could have collapsed, but Dominic, 
Ah, there's a but. There is an incredible comeback. And this is entirely down to a man called Abdel Rahman III, right. who comes to power in 912 when he is age 23. Mm-hmm. And I think we should take a break at this point. What a cliffhanger. And when we come back, we will, um, we will trace the course of his career, which witnesses the absolute golden age of Islamic Spain. Excellent. And you talked about, you know, sherbet and fountains and all that kind of stuff. His rule is pure Arabian Nights. Excellent. So come back after the break and you'll get sherbet and fountains and you'll get the, uh, the golden age of Islamic Spain. What's not to like? See you then. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to The Rest is History. We promised you sherbet and fountains. Tom Holland, will you deliver? I certainly will. And it's all thanks to Abdul Rahman III, this young man who comes to power. He is, I mean, he's not obviously charismatic. He's a little bit, little bit dumpy, I think. Dumpy? Yeah, a little bit dumpy. He's a little bit kind of portly. Uh, he's not the fittest. Right. Who would he be played by? Um, well, <laughs> we, we've just had the suggestion from our producer, uh, a young Jonah Hill. Yeah. I I suggested a young Eddie Large, Tom, but that reference will be lost on some of our listeners. I fear. <laughs> anyway, he's he is he is young. He is a little bit dumpy, and he is naturally depressive. So he's prone to melancholy. Okay. He is also, um, although he's an Amayad and from Syria, yeah. he he has fair hair and he has blue eyes. Oh, that's a twist. Because uh, his his mother was Frankish. Right. And the Umayyads have been marrying Christian slaves. Do the Umayyads have, do they have multiple wives, Tom? They do, yes. They have concubines and all that carry all on? That, all that malarkey, all yeah. that malarkey. Um, and so Abdul Rahman is rather self-conscious about this. And so he dyes his hair and he darkens oh, no. his skin. He darkens his skin? Yeah, because he wants to, he wants to look a kind of authentic Umayyad from the golden age of, yeah, of the dynasty. So actually, he should be played by Justin Trudeau. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Okay, so... <laughs> Jonah Hill crossed with Justin Trudeau. That's it. So he's, so as I say, he's not he's not naturally charismatic. He's not a great general. He's not a religious leader. But he is Dominic. He is very very methodical. Oh, very and good. he is a man with a plan. And the right. moment he becomes, uh, he he succeeds to the rule of Cordova. He starts putting his plan into action. And basically, his plan is to step by step overthrow everybody who is defying him and to destroy the power of all and every local lord out there. And he does this by targeting great cities like Seville and by targeting, you know, the smallest little fortified stronghold on a rocky outcrop. So he's like a man playing a board game or something. Yes. Hoovering up. Yeah, exactly. Uh, And he's very, very good. So he's, he's prepared all kinds of siege engines 
he's commissioned these and he's very expert at using them. Um, he practices economic warfare. So he, uh, a particular thing is cutting down fruit trees. Very good at that. Okay. And uh, whenever he captures a fortress, he makes it his own by putting in his own garrisons, his own deputies, his own rulers. And so the result of this is that step by step, without any spectacular victories, but inexorably, he comes to reconstitute the empire that his ancestors had claimed. And this becomes a virtuous circle because as he reconstitutes this empire, so it starts to, to form a kind of single market. And this single market in turn can then be reintegrated with the much broader single market that is the caliphate beyond the limits of Al-Andalus. So does he have decent relations now with the Abbasid caliphate or do they still regard him? They still regard him as a usurper. But right. merchants don't really care about that because they're all Muslim. Yeah. They all speak the same language. They all have the same culture. And so if you're in Al-Andalus, you know, you have lots of things that you can say, have oil, all kinds of stuff like that. Yeah. But you can import, you know, sandalwood from India or... Spices. Yeah. yeah you camphor from Borneo. I mean, you know, the, the reach of the caliphate is enormous. It's from the Atlantic to... China to Malaysia, you know, it's an enormous, enormous expanse. And so Al-Andalus, now that it's entire again, benefits from this. Yeah. The other thing that uh, Abdurrahman does is he launches jihad and jihad, the idea that you exert yourself on behalf of God and is closely associated by kind of Muslim warlords with the practice of warfare against infidels, against Christians. And so he goes off to, to fight against the Christians of the North who've been right. gradually recovering. And So these mountain kingdoms, basically. Yes, absolutely. And again, he kind of advertises this by a lot of beheadings. So I yeah. promised you beheading. So he yeah. a lot of he- a lot of heads of Christians are harvested and they're brought back and they're slung from the, uh, from the, the gates of the great mosque in Cordova. Uh, and these are kind of like, you know, ad- billboards advertising his prowess. And all of this means that basically by 929, so, you know, almost 20 years after he's come to power, he, he is richer uh, and more militarily potent mm-hmm. than, than any Umayyad before him in Al-Andalus. And so in 929, he decides to take the ultimate step and promote himself to the level of caliph, which uh, is yeah. a caliph is supposed to be the sole ruler of the House of Islam. Obviously, there is already a caliph in Baghdad, but Abdurrahman III isn't going to let a little technicality like that get in the way. And so he has himself proclaimed caliph in uh, in the Great Mosque in Cordova. And he has the wealth and he has the prestige and he has the military power to carry it off. So, Tom, quick question on the assumption of the caliphate. Is there any, as it were, theological disagreement between him and the Abbasid caliphs? Or is this purely a power play? No, it's it's the, there is no separation between politics and and what we would anachronistically call religion. Okay, everything is saturated with the ideals, the principles, the values of Islam, and so to to lay claim to the rule of a caliphate is inevitably to make a theological statement. But there's nothing like a kind of Sunni Shia split. Between. No, it's not like that. It's not. Right. No, it's not like that. But Abdurrahman is laying claim to the rule, not just of Al Andalus you know, as commander of the faithful, but of the whole Muslim world. I mean, that's obviously a joke. He doesn't have a hope of claiming that. Yeah. Basically, he has the heft to carry it off. That's the point. People don't laugh at him for doing it. Right. It's not a, a, an obvious fraud. And the reason for that is that by this point, Cordova is, you know, is spectacularly large and wealthy. So it's, you know, population of 100,000. Craigie. So that would make it probably the biggest city in Western Europe, I guess? By miles. So... The hyperbole that surrounds it is kind of ecstatic. It's a city of 900 baths, of a thousand mosques, of tens of thousands of shops. The libraries are on a prodigious scale. The Caliphal Library alone has 400,000 volumes. You have running water from aqueducts. You have paved streets. And for Muslims, Cordova ranks as a great capital. And for outsiders, you know, Christians from the Frankish North, it's spectacular. I mean, it's off the scale. They're stupefied by it. Uh, and we we know that because we have the record of a, a visit to it by an abbot from the Rhineland called John, who goes there in 950. And John doesn't actually go to Cordova itself. He goes to a place called Medinata al-Zara, which is the, uh, the kind of a Versailles that uh, Abdul Rahman has built outside Cordova. Right. And John is overwhelmed by the spectacle. So he reports that the palace stretches for miles. 
that everywhere he looks, there are soldiers standing to attention, riding on horseback, maneuvering, doing drill. And John says that these soldiers filled our party with consternation, such was their arrogance and swagger. And even the gatehouses, John reports, are adorned with carpets and precious fabrics. Um, there's a zoo that is moated. You know, there are water features everywhere and there's so much, so many fish in it that it requires 12,000 loaves to feed them. Uh, and most spectacular of all, there is a great reception hall and it has a pool of mercury in the middle and you stir the mercury yeah. and it sends shivers of reflected sunlight dancing across the decorated marble walls. And above this, the roof is made of gold and silver and hanging from it, there is a colossal pearl. And so, you know, this is the kind of vision <laughs> of how a caliph should live that yeah. kind of haunts the fantasies of orientalists everywhere. And this is the beginning of that tradition. This is, you know, a Westerner going and being blown away by the spectacle of the wealth and the power of the caliphal court. This is exactly what I was expecting from a podcast about the caliphate of Cordoba, which is, you know, amazing beauty, splendor. The other thing I wanted to ask about, so does this all rest on a, a foundation of relative now, I know you have strong views about this, but relative tolerance, i.e., it sounds like an architectural paradise, but is it also a kind of cultural and, and religious paradise, I suppose? I know religious is the anachronistic word. So the, the, the idea of paradise is obviously very important in Islam. It's a faith that has grown up in areas of the world that are naturally quite parched and dry. Yeah. And so the ability to sustain a paradise, a garden is again a marker of greatness. And so that's why the idea of gardens, of fountains, of mm -hmm. flowing water, of animals, of fish is so important to the the sense that the Muslims themselves in Al-Andalus have of the greatness of this this yeah. palace. And therefore by extinction of of how we today have it, because we, you know, these understandings of of what true greatness is is mediated back to us. I mean it's <laughs> It's not tolerant in the sense that we would understand it. It's not a secular society. It's, mm -hmm. it's proudly and militantly Muslim. And by this point, Christians and Jews are a tiny minority. Uh, they remain subordinate. Of course, there is th their position is within the caliphate is upheld by Islamic law. You know, they submit and in exchange for their submission, they're granted yeah, tolerance. Because they're people of the book. And this provides scope for what we might call kind of multicultural dialogue. So uh, Muslim scholars and... Christian scholars and Jewish scholars do meet. I think the multicultural angle can be massively overdone. And you see why people want to believe that there was a, you know, a multicultural paradise back in the past that we can, yeah. you know, identify with. I, to, to be honest, the most multicultural activity in this period in the European context is the slave trade. So the reason why we call slaves slaves and not say the Latin word is, is survey is because large numbers of Slavs are being kidnapped and enslaved by the Saxons and the Franks mm -hmm. on the Eastern frontier. This is how they are making their money by exporting slaves to the vastly more advanced, technically and culturally sophisticated societies of North Africa and of Al-Andalus. So the slaves, the Slavs are being led down through the Frankish lands. They come to Verdun, which is uh, headquarters of Jewish doctors who will there take the most beautiful slaves and castrate them, sometimes with a complete penoptomy. So everything gets removed. And these right. are massively, massively prized. And then they get taken to uh, to the courts of, uh, of Al-Andalus and, yeah. and specifically to, uh, to the court of the caliph at Cordova. And it's not just eunuchs who are going, and it's not just female slaves to serve as concubines. It's also soldiers. Basically, by this point, the, the, the Muslims of Al-Andalus aren't really interested in going off and fighting the barbarous Christians in the north. You know, they want to kind of hang around <laughs> yeah. enjoying the fruits of their incredible civilization. Um, so the Caliph Abdurrahman III is importing huge numbers of, of Slavic soldiers who are known as Sakaliba. And these are the soldiers that Abbot John, when he visits the Caliphal Palace, sees. And the reports get back to the Frankish lands and it's hailed by people there as, you know, this brilliant ornament. This is the most exquisite place in the world. It doesn't matter that it's a Muslim capital. It is seen as being 
the most wonderful place. And Abdul Rahman presides over this golden age. He rules for 49 years, but very sadly, he confides in his diary towards the end of his life that in all that time, he had only known 14 days of happiness. 14 days? 14 days. It's very, it's very exact. Yeah, yeah. It's very sad. What happened on those 14 days? Many people have wondered. So I've diligently numbered the days of pure and genuine happiness, which have fallen to my lot. They amount to 14. Yeah. I mean, he's very exact about it. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. He's been counting them up. Yeah. Um, but, you know, he's clearly a, a great ruler. Cordova reaches its kind of imperial apogee, but it's dependent on peace. Everything is very, very centralized. And the caliph himself, you know, out in his Versailles equivalent, is becoming increasingly isolated. So he spends an awful lot of time in his harem. Is that is that right, Tom? Well, this is the stereotype. We don't really know, but he, he definitely isolates himself from okay. from the kind of the throng and the, the surge of Cordova itself. And a, a city like Cordova and an empire like that of, of um, the Umayyad Caliphate can only be maintained in conditions of peace. It's dependent on the existence of a bureaucracy. Right. So when you have a virtuous circle, it upholds this kind of great imperial structure. But if the structure starts to fragment, yeah. if you know the conditions of peace that enable the economy to function and the bureaucracy to do what it has to do starts to go into decline, then you have a problem. It's not initially a problem after Abdul Rahman's death because his son Al-Hakam is a very effective caliph as well, very shrewd, very sophisticated. But then in 976, Al-Hakam is succeeded by his son, who is 14 years old. And this is a guy called Hisham. Yeah. And uh, do you want to know what a top, how a top historian has described the reign of Hisham? This is yourself, Tom. He passed the entire span of his reign within the gilded cage of Cordova's citadel, the anonymous and indolent victim of his own general uselessness. Oh, golly. I hope no one says that about you. Yeah, <laughs> it would be very sad, wouldn't it? And this is also happening in, in, um, in Baghdad as well. There's a sense in which the, the caliph is, is ceasing to be an actor and he's starting to become a cipher or a symbol or a phantom however right. you want to cast it. In a way, Tom, could you not argue that that is a tribute to the the resilience, the sophistication of the bureaucracy? That it you doesn't could. need yeah. a, a, a single warlord to cow people, that actually the, the, the machine can run quite happily and he can mess around in his harem and drink his sherbet. Well, so what actually happens under the reign of, of Hisham II is that the effective mastery of the caliphate is seized by his vizier, so his right. prime minister, his, you know, his, his main, uh, main minister. And this is a guy who is called Ibn Abul Amir. And uh, he's a very celebrated warrior. He's a very distinguished religious scholar. He's very stern. He's very masterful. And in 981, he adopts the absolutely brilliant title of the victorious one, Al-Mansur. Yeah. And basically Al-Mansur, he despises the wealth and the sophistication and the glamour of Cordova. He sees it as, as decadent, as depraved, as dissipated. And he is, you know, he's, he's desperate to see the Muslims of Cordova taken back to the good old days when they went off and fought with Christians and were mm. austere and didn't just kind of sit around looking at giant pearls and <laughs> stirring mercury pools and all that kind of stuff. And so he's resolved to correct it. And he does this in two ways. And the first is that he sets in train a, a very radical process of public reform kind of so scholars who are suspected of heresy are publicly crucified in cordova and he employs agents to go through the caliphal library and to winnow it of heretical texts um, and okay. these are then burnt in public bonfires so the, the age of tolerance is definitively dead with this fellow he's not in favor of tolerance at all no right. and uh, the other measure of how he's not in favor of tolerance is that he is a massively in favor of jihad he is hugely in favor of that. So he goes off, he burns Barcelona. Uh, he repeatedly invades the kingdom of Leon, which is starting yeah. to emerge as one of the more powerful Christian kingdoms. And in 997, he attacks the holiest of all the Christian shrines in northern Spain, which is Santiago de la Compostela, where supposedly St. James is buried. And there are various very improbable stories as to how St. James ends up buried <laughs> In Santiago, yeah, um, and Santi uh, and Saint James Santiago comes to be associated by the Christians with fighting the Moors. Obviously, this this doesn't go down well with Al Mansur, and so he launches this great attack on on Santiago. He occupies it for a week. He burns everything that he can. He destroys the cathedral. Uh, he plunders it. He takes large numbers of slaves. And when he marches back to Cordova, he makes Christian captives carry the bells from the cathedral. 
all the way to Cordova, where they are hung up in the mosque and they are used as candle holders. Wow. And the Christian slaves he's brought are either set to work building uh, extension to the mosque. Yeah. So, you know, make it even more domineering at a center of, uh, uh, in Cordova, or they're beheaded. And again, their heads are sent to the mosque. So again, this is very much a theme. You yeah. advertise your piety by beheading Christians and hanging them from the, from the gates of the mosque. So all of this is about making, well, I suppose it's not about making the Caliphate of Cordova great again, because it's already great, but it's about making it even greater, holy again. Right. Holy again. Yeah. Properly Islamic again. But even though it looks as though uh, it's the Christian kingdoms of the North that are being harrowed and gashed and wounded, the truth is that the whole time, even under Al-Mansur, this great conqueror, the seeds of the downfall of the Caliphate of Cordova itself are being sown. Because Al-Mansur, when he goes on his wars, he is more reluctant to rely on Slavic slaves than his, you know, his caliphal predecessors had been. And instead, he recruits people from North Africa. So he recruits Berbers. Yeah. And they, in the words of one Muslim chronicler, they are famed for their exploits, their qualities, and their valor in the face of the Christians. And these are the kind of guys that Al-Mansur wants. And so he recruits ever larger numbers of Berber warbands. Uh, he billets them across the caliphate. And, you know, the people in Cordova and beyond are not very keen on having a load of, as they see it, uh, yeah, barbarian zealots kind of dumped on them, um, particularly since they're having to pay for them. So, yeah. you know, there aren't enough Christians to fund them now. So Muslims are having to be taxed and they don't like this. They don't like having to pay for these guys. And so as the tax rate spirals upwards, the resentment of people in Al-Andalus towards the Berbers escalates, particularly in Cordova, but also beyond it, you start to get this great swirl of, of ethnic hatreds, incredible hostility on the part of the inhabitants of, of Al-Andalus towards these, as they see it, barbarian immigrants. And that, so this is not religious. This is purely ethnic, basically. It's basically, yeah, it's basically ethnic. They, they yeah. don't like them. They don't like them. Um, 1002, Al-Mansur dies. And he succeeded uh, as vizier by his son, Abdul Malik, very popular name in this period. Yeah. Uh, Abdul Malik, unlike his dad, is an alcoholic, but, okay. but he's also very keen on jihad. So he's, he's very expert. So it seems to just kind of tick along. He goes off and you know does his stuff on the northern frontier. But then in 1008, he dies and is succeeded by his brother, who is the son of a Christian concubine and is disdainfully known by everyone in Cordova as Sanchuelo. Um, Sanchuelo. He's, he's a very devout Muslim, but he has this kind of mocking name. And Sanchuelo forces poor old uh, Hisham II, who's still very much around in his right. gilded cage being useless. He forces Hisham to name Sanchuelo as heir. And he all. <laughs> Sanchuelo is absolutely not a diplomat. So he forces everyone at court to start wearing Berber fashions and Berber style of turban. So this goes down like a cup of cold sick. He gallops off on jihad to the north. And while he's away, an Umayyad fugitive, Nick sneaks into Cordova, rallies all the other Umayyads who've basically been dispossessed by this yeah. you know, new, new family of viziers, deposes Hisham II and lays claim to be caliph. And Basically, he, he says to the Cordovans, the Umayyads are back. Everything's back to normal. Let's pile in. And so lots of Cordovans rally to his cause. They burst into the palace. They invade the harem. They grab all the most beautiful women, kind of parcel them out among themselves. And then when they learn that Sanchuelo, who's up in the north fighting the, the Christians, has been assassinated, his corpse is brought back. It's stuck up on a gibbet. And uh, this new caliph goes so far that he puts a bounty on the head of every Berber in Cordova and beyond. And so this unleashes an absolute orgy of carnage and bloodshed. You get huge mobs spilling out, you know, they're being given money for every Berber head that they can find. And so there's huge mass slaughter. Their women are, are raped, tethered together to be sold as slaves. Pregnant women have their babies cut out of their wombs. It's a monstrous scene. And of course, it's a terrible, terrible mistake because even though they've wiped out all the Berbers in Cordova, they have not wiped out all the Berbers in Al-Andalus. And these are guys who are very, very proficient at warfare. They're not going to take this kind of treatment lightly. And so they form a great army and they lay Cordova under siege in 1010. The, the caliph, the Umayyad caliph, who has set all this in motion, the Cordovans realize this has been a terrible mistake. So they depose him and restore Hisham II, who's still kind of 
you know, on the scene. He's very much the Henry VI of right. yeah. the, uh, the Umayyad Caliphate. And they endure a three-year siege and desperate scenes, cannibalism, eating leather, eating rats, all that kind of stuff. And after three-year siege, the Berbers break in, complete slaughter, put it absolute to the torch. Hisham II, at last, it's presumed, is killed. So he's finally gone. Right. And this great, golden, wealthy city, uh, you know, a, a, a city that can compare with Constantinople or Baghdad, is put to the torch, and it will never again kind of reclaim that kind of golden primacy. Nor ever again will there be a ruler who can lay claim to a kind of caliphal status. You do get spectral caliphs, but they, you know, they're rulers of nothing. And oh. you start to get increasing numbers of Muslim rulers who, who don't even tend to be caliphs, so local warlords. And this is a process of fragmentation that leaves Al-Andalus kind of shattered. Oh, this is what they call the fitna, isn't it? The fitna, yes. Sort of anarchy or civil war or whatever that lasts for, what, 20 years? Well, it lasts, yeah, I mean, it actually lasts for, you know, it's never reunited. It it fragments into different kingdoms. And it's this, of course, that enables the predatory Christian kingdoms of the north to start really, really reclaiming the Visigothic lands that have been lost. And, you know, within a century of the sack of Cordova, Toledo has been retaken and the kings of Castile and Leon are really starting to press southwards. So the thing that's amazing about the the Caliphate of Cordova is the incredible pinnacle of sophistication and and wealth and glamour that it attains and then the utter implosion. Yeah. And it's an extraordinary story. Of course, Muslim Spain endures for a very, very long time after this, you know, right the way up to the age of Ferdinand and Isabella. Granada doesn't fall to 1492, but it's, you know, the balance of power with the sack of Cordova shifts from from Muslim Spain to Christian Spain. Yeah. So the Granada stuff, because people often think of Granada and the Alhambra when they think of Islamic Spain, but that's really just an epilogue, isn't it? It's kind of afterthought. The high point is Cordova in what, the 10th century? 10th century, yeah. Yeah, it's the 10th century. And in terms of the sort of the culture, Tom, the philosophy, literature, science, Am I right in thinking that Cordoba is a kind of oasis of all this? Um, okay, so our, our view of uh, the early medieval period, and maybe you will say this is now, this is a very late 20th, early 21st century sort of, as it were, a liberal projection. The common view is, you know, that the Islamic Spain, the Caliphate of Cordoba, is an oasis of intellectualism and thought and, 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 and people engaging with the classical legacy while out in the sticks uh, the Christians are living in mud and... It is, it is. Yeah. Uh, so the Caliph of Cordova sees himself as, it say, an equal of, of the emperor in Constantinople. And that right. has good relations with him. So the Umayyads had always been accused by the Arabs of a habit called a Caesarea, so behaving like a Caesar. And so the emperor in Constantinople and the Caliph in Cordova, they kind of swap books, you know, they send messengers, they right. view each other as being kind of equals. The Caliph views, say, the kings of Germany, Otto the the Great and his Mm. heirs, with a kind of mild contempt. I mean, he sends books to the emperor in Constantinople. He sends wild animals to to, to Otto, because these are the kind of things that will impress a barbarian. And the kind of community of scholarship that the caliphate presides over means that all kinds of texts can be imported into Cordova. So Aristotle famously, yeah. uh, and in due course, when Toledo is captured, Toledo becomes a great center of translation presided over by Christian kings, but with Muslim scholars and Christian scholars and Jewish scholars all working together. And that really is, you know, this idea of the tolerance and the dialogue. And absolutely, that's a part of it. The idea that there is a kind of community of scholars that perhaps transcends the sectarianism that also very powerfully exists because it has to you know it has to be said that there is a lot of beheading of christians going on right you know this is happening and 1066 a date famous in england there is a a pogrom of jews in granada so it's not like christians and jews are treated as equals they're not they're institutionally inferior but Mm -hmm. that institutional inferiority means that there is a place for them yeah the difference between, say, the, the role that, say, that Jews have in Christian Europe is that there isn't a religiously prescribed role for the Jews, because in the New Testament, it makes no sense to think of it in those terms. Whereas in the Quran, there is a sense of Jews and Christians existing. And so their treatment can be prescribed yeah. by 
by the Quran. But I, every multicultural society, there has to be a dominant society. Our, our dominant framework is a secular one. Mm-hmm. You know, we prescribe freedom of religion, but we don't prescribe freedom of religion to the degree that, you know, religious people are allowed to campaign for the, the abolition of secularism, for instance. Yeah. And likewise, in Muslim Spain, the framework is very definitely provides scope for Jewish and Christian scholars to do what they want to do, to, to, to practice their faith, to, to study one another, whatever. But the framework is absolutely a Muslim one. And people who offend against that, you know, will be dealt with. So two, two questions before we wrap up. Question number one, if you have to live anywhere in 10th century Europe, you know, the time machine condemns you to life in Western Europe. Is Cordoba the obvious place to choose? Oh, I think Malmesbury. Malmesbury. <laughs> the court of Athelstan. <laughs> right. But there's no sherbet and fountains there, right? I mean, <laughs> I think, I think if you want running water and baths and libraries and all that kind of stuff and yeah. imports from China and, and yeah. the Indian Ocean. Frankly, those sound very good to me. Yeah. Cordova is the only place to be. Okay. And so the second question, is there, I mean, I know we have many times poor, sort of had great fun pouring scorn on what ifs, but is there an alternative history in which the Caliphate of Cordoba survives or evolves in some way so that there is still an Islamic Spain today? I think so. Yeah, I think so. I don't think there's anything inevitable about it. I mean, it's it, it's it's not just about the weakness of the state structures in Cordoba. It's also about the growing strength of the Christian kings. Mm-hmm. And that reflects a, a, a kind of a growing self-confidence that's economic, that's religious, that's cultural on the part of the Christians of Northern Europe. So who knows? I, I think it would be, you, you could imagine an alternative timeline where there is still a, yeah. an Islamic presence in Southern Spain. It's fascinating. I think we'll have to come back to the Reconquista. Well, if you think about it, I mean, we've, we, we talked about in our uh, history of Portugal about the attempt by the Portuguese to conquer North Africa. If they'd done that, perhaps we'd be saying, well, is there a, you know, can you imagine a counterfactual in which Morocco is still Muslim? Of course. Yeah. So who knows? Interesting questions. Uh, Tom, that was absolutely fascinating. And the best thing about it, as with quite a lot of these um, World Cup themed podcasts, is that it, it really made me, what I was listening to you, want to go back to Cordoba and to <laughs> go and see the Mezquita and, you know, all that sort of stuff. So, um, yeah. So yeah. the Spanish tourist board should be very grateful to you. <laughs> I hope so. Thank you so much to all of you for listening. And uh, we will see you next time. So thank you, Tom, and goodbye. Hasta luego. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com.